0: This is a download from Newstalk 106 to 108. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking books on Newstalk 106 to 108. That he ever came out in the sense that we understand that term, um, you know, now Forster's mother was the was the one person he could never, never, never say those words to. Some very close friends knew. Some others understood without being told. But by and large, Forster's sexual life was a was a secret. And I think this aspect of him was so repressed, so terribly repressed, it gave rise to a lot of his creative work. In fact, you know, while it was a torment for him, maybe we ought to feel it as a blessing.
1: The English novelist E. M. Forster. Once shrewdly observed, the truth is a flower in whose neighbourhood others must wither. Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. How conservative is Irish publishing and are stories of the migrant experience, which feature African characters and themes of identity, racism, and post colonial politics, disregarded in favour of more traditional narratives? First time novelist Una Frawley and Lisa Cohen of Tramp Press discuss creativity, innovation, and the state of independent publishing in Ireland. And when did Buddhism become the alternative to mainstream religion in Ireland? Lawrence Cox discusses the first Irish Buddhists who jumped ship and went native. His fascinating account of the extraordinary relationship between Buddhism and the people of Ireland. And award-winning South African writer Damon Gallut talks to me about his latest book, Arctic Summer, a gorgeously written literary homage to novelist E.M. Forster. This is a show about intimacy and longing, loneliness and isolation, misunderstanding and memory. But first, Ireland and Buddhism have had a long history. From the earliest trills of travellers' tales in far-off lands to a religious alternative to Christianity, Irish people have discovered Buddhism in a variety of ways over the last 14 centuries. Buddhism in Ireland from the Celts to Counterculture and Beyond by Lawrence Cox offers readers the fascinating story of how Buddhism arrived and was localised in Ireland Lawrence highlights how in pre-independence Ireland Buddhism was a symbol of human indifference and traces how Irish writers and artists have been playing with Buddhist culture for over a century, including the writer James Joyce, whose Molly Bloom soliloquy immortalises a Burmese Buddhist statue that once stood in the National Museum's entrance. This insightful and thought-provoking book challenges conventional histories of Western Buddhism and culture and reveals why Irish Buddhists have had a longer history than we might suppose. What I like about Lawrence's book is that it expertly shows how Buddhism means a variety of things to different people throughout the country. Buddhism in Ireland is an exciting story of some of the extraordinary pioneers of Irish Buddhism and the journey of ideas across Europe and Asia. It's a delight to read and hugely engaging no matter what your spiritual perspective. Lawrence Cox is an engaged social movements researcher and the director of the MA in Community Education, Equality and Social Activism at NUI Maynooth. He's written extensively on issues such as global justice, counterculturalism, Marxism, and Labour, and some of his many interesting books include The Buddha and the Barcode, Understanding Buddhism in the 21st Century, Marxism and Social Movements, and Ireland's New Religious Movements. Well, Lawrence breezed into Newstalk all relaxed earlier in the week and talked me through how how Buddhism has exploded to become Ireland's third largest religion from its first appearances in the 1871 census.
0: Well I think the Irish Times was quite surprised by it at the time. They had a good long sneer at the Buddhists, uh, Muslims, pagans and so on that actually turned up when they asked people what they believed. What we do know is that whoever this person was, it was a man somewhere in County Dublin, they didn't put their head above the radar. They wrote it anonymously in the census and it came up then a hundred years later when the census records were released.
1: There's some interesting stuff in relation to Franciscans in the 14th century.
0: Well there's this lad um, James of Ireland who I imagine with kind of sort of sticky out ears uh, and a bit of red hair who was a fixer for an Italian Franciscan and between the pair of them they went to Sri Lanka, India, Java, Sumatra, China they might have got to Tibet. The way we know he was a fixer, the Italian guy was not very smart, would not have survived on his own in Asia. When they come back the Irish guy gets himself Voted a pension The Italian dies He was old And the Irish guy then starts Selling letters of introduction To his dead friend You can buy the letter You go and pray at the saint's tomb And you get healed So you can imagine people like that Around today
1: And we also had Jesuits In the 16th and 17th century Who went to places like China And saw the merits in Buddhism
0: Yeah there were Jesuit missionaries All over Buddhist Asia Um, As far as we know None of them were Irish But all that material came back Because of course There were Jesuits in our. Ireland, clandestinely, sometimes more or less tolerated, sometimes targeted by priest hunters. There were Jesuit schools all over the place. And the letters that the missionaries sent back, they were put into books which were published, widely available. There's quite a lot of them scattered around Irish libraries. So Irish people knew in the 16th, 17th century quite a bit about Japanese, Tibetan, Sri Lankan Buddhism that was available.
1: And would that have been a reaction to colonialism as well, that they had a kind of a curiosity for something different?
0: It's hard to know what people made of it in the 16th or 17th centuries. Also, because that was not a period in which you could say, I think this non-Christian religion sounds rather nice. That was not a safe thing to say in the middle of the wars of religion. But certainly by the 18th, 19th century, there are very large numbers of Irish people in Asia. They're soldiers, they're sailors, they're judges, they're traders. Um, Some of them, they've finished their work, they've stayed there. Some of them, they're coming back to Ireland. It becomes extremely common So an awful lot of Irish people just, you know, settled down in Asia for 20 years or maybe for a whole lifetime.
1: And you have some extraordinary stories of some very courageous, but at the same time dubious or a Mm. little bit messy as characters.
0: Well, you had to be pretty strong minded for 100 years between that 1871 census and then 1971. No Irish person in Ireland ever publicly says, I'm a Buddhist. It was that difficult, not just in the middle of the kind of late 19th century, but in the 60s. Nobody said said it. Um so if you were Irish and publicly Buddhist, you were in Asia and yeah, you'd gone native. Um in some ways it's not a surprising thing. You know, imagine you've gone to another country, maybe you've married somebody, you settle down, you do what people do in the village. Unless you were very visible, who would know? One I like is a character called Damaloka. We think he was born Lawrence Carroll. We're not quite sure, because at age 16, he leaves home, he works his way across the Atlantic, and he becomes a hobo in the States. And he disappears from historical record for about 26 years. We don't quite know what he was up to. We have Suspicions, but we don't know. He finds himself in Asia in 1900, so there's this huge big gap. And almost immediately, he is confronting missionaries. He's being followed by the police, by the intelligence services. He's tried for sedition once, maybe twice. He's literally everywhere. He is in Japan, China, present-day Malaysia, Singapore, Burma, Cambodia, Thailand, Nepal, India, Ceylon. You name it, he's there. And then he disappears again 13 years later we don't know where he died. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he changed his name again. But for 13 years this guy is an absolute celebrity and a real kind of pain in the arse for the British authorities and the missionaries.
1: And what did Irish people think about him? Or what did they know about him? And what was the general reaction?
0: Well he turned up in the Sunday Independent in 1911 and they were kind of proud of him because they said well the British governor came to Mandalay and there was nobody there to meet him because they were all off to meet Davaloka. They thought he was much better. And you could kind of safely clap for people putting one over on the empire over there and maybe say things that you mightn't have said at home all the time.
1: Now one of the noticeable things Lawrence about the book is that there was a huge academic scholarship associated with Buddhism and Buddhist values with the likes of poets and writers like Shaw and Yeats who were very intrigued by some of the aesthetic principles and the practices and the rituals Well mm. actually applying it into their own lives is something different and we had communes, Buddhist thinking communes in Ireland. I think there was one called The Household. And we had vegetarian societies in the 19th century and lots of interesting, creative, somewhat eccentric people discussing and debating Buddhist principles. But there wasn't a lot of the doing or what we know today as the praxis of Buddhism.
0: It was very hard to do so. There weren't meditation manuals. There weren't meditation teachers. So you could be inspired you could imagine yourself in Asia. But unless you were actually there, how would you know, really? And it's only in, guess, around 1960 that we have clear indication of the first Irish person actually learning meditation and actually writing about it. And then in the 60s and the 70s, people, mostly who hadn't been to Asia themselves, but Asian teachers, are in Britain or France. They're starting to bring that into Ireland. They're starting to set up centres. And by the 1980s, 1990s, you can actually go and do a meditation course in Dublin, let's say, or in some of the rural retreat centres like West Cork or whatever.
1: Now, some people, when they think of Buddhism, they think of mindfulness and, you know, the sitting still, the calming the mind, the focus. But there's more to Buddhism than mindfulness and there's more to Buddhism than simply meditation practice. Can you maybe explain for listeners who wouldn't be so au fait with some of the key principles what Buddhism is all about?
0: I think the most basic thing is the proposition that you can change yourself. You can change very fundamentally how your own experience is, your emotions, your actions, and what things are like for people around you as a result of that. Um, it's not mysterious, it doesn't require divine grace, or it's a little bit of learning, a little bit of application. And meditation is an aspect of that, certainly, not all of it. Well, I think particularly for people who'd grown up in an earlier sort of Western Christian context, it was a much bigger picture, and you see that already in the Middle Ages and the early modern period, that you had this Christian idea that time had somehow started quite recently, and the most important thing had only happened at AD 0, and we were not far off the end of time. And it was all happening here in this very, very small space. One of the things that people are most struck by in the 19th, 20th century is this idea, time is much bigger than that. There are many, many worlds, there isn't just this little small space in which everything important is happening. And of course that's what Irish people's experience was as well. If you came from a small town and suddenly you found yourself in India you had to radically enlarge your sense of what being a human being was because you were confronted with just so much diversity so many different experiences so the kinds of things that people had to come to grips with they struggled very much with the idea that there wasn't a soul there wasn't a core self and this is what enables you to change there isn't you know as they'd usually been brought up with this bad you that was going to stay bad and if you were lucky God would pat you on the head and you'd get into heaven anyway.
1: And Lawrence over the last 100 years how do you think Irish people have interfaced with the differences in different types of religions and the different practices and the different understandings of self an ego of death transformation?
0: I think until very very recently the big difficulty for people was stepping out of what they were brought up with and you can see that still in older people that very often the same person is very attached to stuff which is their, you know it's their childhood stuff but at the same time that child has often been quite painful quite upsetting quite controlling so stepping out of that Finding a space where people could explore freely has been hugely, hugely important to people and in some very basic ways, you know. I think it's become a lot easier easier for people to say i'm a buddhist but on the most buddhist groups will say to you you don't need to be a buddhist to learn how to meditate for example you don't need to be a buddhist to learn this and benefit from it and you see as well on the other side you see a lot of people who still identify as catholic or protestant or whatever borrowing meditation techniques for example going to talks by the dalai lama by tich or whatever it is reading books going on retreats so people i think are a lot freer particularly this last 10 years or whatever to really explore and find out what they need for themselves and that's a huge step forward for everybody
1: and what's interesting is that you say in your book that some Buddhists weren't comfortable in outing themselves I was quite surprised by that
0: it's a difficult situation I mean part of it is in Ireland if you say to me we all believe in one God and I say sorry I don't believe in God that already sounds quite aggressive and we have a history where disagreeing about religion brings up anxiety it brings up fear and potentially aggression. But also um, we find there's an awful lot of family pressure. So a lot of people who call themselves Buddhists, they'll get the children baptised for the sake of the grandparents. They'll send their kids to a Catholic school. Their kids will do First Communion. They might get buried in church, these kinds of things. So there's a lot of negotiation going on on both sides.
1: So are we not maybe equipped as a society to support difference?
0: I think we find it easier when the difference doesn't challenge us. Because, of course, if you're saying to me, well, we all think the same thing, really. And I'm saying, well, I'm sorry, I was brought up in what you think, but I've changed. There's a problem there. And it's hard to address that. It's easier in some ways. uh, If somebody's Sri Lankan and you go, well, you're Sri Lankan, you're Buddhist, that doesn't affect me. You're just an outsider. And in fact... It seems that uh, Asian Buddhists as Buddhists uh, don't seem to run into many difficulties, as Asians possibly through general racism, but their being Buddhist isn't particularly a problem. Irish people brought up being Catholic and then converting to Buddhism that's a bit more of a challenge. That's harder to negotiate, of course.
1: But we have seen, Lawrence, a huge growth in Buddhism in Ireland. And I think that the numbers have almost doubled between the last two censuses.
0: Yeah, no, that's definitely the case. And one of the things that you can see looking at the census figures is over the last 10, maybe 15 years, it's much more acceptable not just to say I'm a Buddhist, but to say I'm a pagan, I'm an atheist, or... Um, where people used to, where religion really used to be kind of just part of your family. If somebody said, are you Catholic or Protestant? You knew what they meant. It wasn't, what did you think? Even you know, since the 1980s, it hasn't been, are you a loyal practitioner? You can see that in the birthright. Most Irish Catholics have ignored church teaching on contraception. It's very, very obvious, but they were Catholics nonetheless. And now people are much freer, I think, to start saying, well, you know, this is what I feel, this is what I think, and to change that over time as well. But it, it's a slow process and, you know, everybody has to come at it at their own pace.
1: Where did you get the idea to write a book about Buddhism in Ireland?
0: Well somebody asked me to write a little piece about the Buddhist community in Ireland today and I thought hang on a sec we don't actually know when the first Irish Buddhists were and like you would I thought it'd be the 1960s 1970s and when we started digging and found Actually, the 1871 census, and actually, this Franciscan monk in the 14th century visiting Buddhist monasteries in China started to realize there was an awful lot more there than met the eye. And we encountered figures like Damaloka or um, Lobsang Jivaka, this pioneer transsexual, uh, individuals like that. And we started to think this is actually extraordinarily interesting. We need to put this together. And it's very rare to have the chance to really find out something about an utterly new field, particularly particularly in Irish studies, usually you're adding a little bit to something which has already been gone over several times.
1: And there's great stories in it that people may be surprised by how colourful the history of Buddhism is and the relationship of Ireland to Buddhist communities throughout the world.
0: Yeah, well, if you think of it backwards, today, it's fairly easy to become a Buddhist or to learn Buddhist meditation. You don't have to be particularly weird. Uh, People won't look at you too strangely, you know, a little bit. There is some pressure, there is some discrimination, but it's not that hard. If you go back even 50 years, never mind 100 years, you had to be a very, very strong character to do it. You had to be uh, willing to plough your own furrow no matter what anybody else around you said. Threats of losing your job, um, getting disinherited, uh, your family casting you out, all of this stuff. So we find... Really remarkable people say the woman who set up Ireland's first Buddhist centre, Vivian Butler Burke, her parents were already dead. She had some independent income, so she was freer from those kinds of pressures. She was still very isolated, very lonely. And somebody writes to her from Asia, we don't know yet, and says, would you set up a Buddhist centre in Dublin? And she says, you know, I will. So between... 1928-1936 on Harcourt Terrace there by the canal she is running a Buddhist centre but she was one strong woman Michal MacLeomore thought she was weird so if he thought she was eccentric she was a very very strong personality but she was able to do it
1: How difficult was it to research a book like this? We're looking at radically different symbols and possibly a lot of people who were deemed outsiders up until Hmm. the 1960s So how difficult was research Lawrence?
0: It's quite complicated So say that woman Vivian Butler-Burke I was talking to you about